connected. Before the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, I, I confess with David that it is easy to clean up the outside, to look good and to go through the motions. In his case, it was offerings. In our case, so often, it's just church attendance. But our hearts can be so far from you. And so as David said, you don't delight in sacrifice or you'd give it. You'll not be pleased with a burnt offering. What you desire from us are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Lord, give us such humility as we come to your word. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Take out your copy of God's word. And turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We, we really do want you to see the scriptures and search the scriptures for yourself. That's what the Bereans in Acts 17 were commended for, that they searched the scriptures to see that these things were so. Another way of saying that is don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. We're looking at Hebrews 9. Last week we saw that all the earthly elements of old covenant worship were simply shadows and copies of heavenly realities. Everything about Old Testament worship with the sacrifices and all of the ceremonies, it was all representative of what we'll call gospel truths. It was all symbolic of what the Lord Jesus came to do. Now, it was symbolic, but it was also powerless. The blood of bulls and goats and a billion sacrifices of animals could not have taken away sin. So why did it exist? It existed to point to the once-for-all sacrifice that the Lord Jesus would come to make by shedding his blood as our great high priest. And the author of Hebrews is reminding his flock that is so prone to wander. Don't go back to the copies. Don't go back to just the outward external stuff. Because that's what it is. It's just a copy. Come to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the heavenly reality, because he alone has the power to accomplish what all those earthly ceremonies and rituals represented. And that's what we're going to be looking at today in Hebrews 9, verses 1 to 14. This is really a picture of what the Lord Jesus accomplished that nothing else was able to do. Listen now to the reading of God's word, beloved. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of all, thi of all these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, but, and he but once a year, 
and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The grass withers, the flower fades, but... The word of our God will stand forever. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was most famous for his Sherlock Holmes stories, but he was known to an inner circle of friends as a notorious prankster. And one day, he decided to write a letter to 12 of his friends, and it was anonymous, the way he wrote it, and it simply said, flee all has been discovered. And all 12 of the men who received the letter had skipped town by nightfall. You know, a guilty conscience is a powerful thing, isn't it? A lot of people live like Holmes's friends, uh, Doyle's friends, excuse me, wondering if today is the day that everything will be discovered. You know, in reality, all of us have stuff in our past that when it comes to mind, it brings us guilt. For some of us, likely, there are things we've done, maybe in the distant past, maybe in the very recent past, that we've never told anyone because we're scared of what they might say if they were to find out. Our consciences can be a real problem, can't they? You know, sometimes our consciences can be seared, can become hardened. That's when we so allow sin to become a settled part of our life that it no longer really bothers us. We can sin without any sense of, of guilt. Others, their, their consciences are, are so uh, overactive in a sense that they're, they're constantly, consciously trying uh, to assuage their con- consciences so much so that they've become slaves to their conscience, always trying to do more, hoping to find some sort of relief. And the point that Hebrews is making here is no matter what we do to try to cleanse and assuage our own consciences, Nothing we do can purify the conscience. It'll never be enough because the most we can do is is outward. 
That's what verse 10 is saying. It deals only with food and drink and various washings. That's talking about all those Old Testament ceremonies. They deal with the outside. That's the most we can do is make ourselves look better. But we can't purify the inward self. And that's the reason Hebrews is calling us not to turn away from Christ, but to fix our eyes all the more upon him because he alone can cleanse and purify the conscience. We're going to look at two things this morning. The problem of the conscience and the power of the cross. The problem of the conscience and the power of the cross. So first, let's look at the problem of, of, of the conscience The conscience is a great gift from God. It's a wonderful gift. That word there for conscience in verse 9, it comes from a Greek word, uh, synadesis, which literally means to see with. It's speaking of this God-given inward sense of moral right and wrong that humans have by virtue of being image bearers of God. It is innate to us. God made us to be free moral agents. We make our own choices. And he gave us the gift of conscience as sort of an inner moral compass to show us the difference between right and wrong. The conscience is a God-given gift. And part of what it's doing is not simply showing us right from wrong, but it's actually intended to show us our standing before God. You see, in order to stand before God, our consciences must be pure. They must be blameless. And if, if they're stained with even one drop of sin, then our, te- our consciences actually testify against us that we're unrighteous, that we cannot stand in the presence of God. That's why God gave these to us, so we would have that inward sense that that sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. What do you do? What do you do to deal with a guilty conscience? For Old Covenant Jews, they did sacrifices and rituals and ceremonies to try to take away their sin. And so the Old Testament had so many different types of offerings and sacrifices. But it didn't work. Well, it worked in the way that God intended. It was intended to show our need of a greater sacrifice, but that's not how so many of the people used it. They used it thinking, if I do this, it will take away my sins. But look at verse 9, second part of verse 9. According to this arrangement, that's talking about the old covenant system, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You know what he's saying there? Even a lifetime commitment to those things, to gifts and sacrifices, being in the temple week after week, offering sacrifices. That cannot remove the stain of sin from the human conscience. You know, and the problem for most of us, the innate sin issue that we have is that we don't realize we can't make atonement for our sins. 
You know, what is the first thing Adam and Eve did? They sewed fig leaves to try to cover themselves, to cover their shame. And so what happens then is we come up with an every person on the face of the earth has some sort of system that we use to try to hush our consciences, to change our consciences so that they don't tell us how things really are. You know, as sinners, sometimes our consciences just become really annoying, don't they? I I think about conscience a lot like the check engine light on the car. You know, check engine light, it comes on to tell you something's wrong. It might be telling you it's time for maintenance. It might be telling you that you have a, a vacuum leak. You might be out of oil. But the conscience is like the check engine light. It's God's way of saying to us, things aren't right. Things aren't the way they're supposed to be. You know, I have a 21-year-old pickup truck, and I'm guessing for the last uh, 100,000 miles or so, there's been a check engine light, and I haven't paid a lick of attention to it. And if I could figure out how to turn it off, I would, because it really annoys me. Isn't that how conscience is? Because of sin's entry into the human mind and heart, every human faculty is affected. Our bodies feel the effects of sin. Our, our affections feel the effects of sin. And our consciences do. Our consciences don't work the way they ought to. What should be an infallible guide of right and wrong has become a very fallible guide. At times, our consciences don't awaken us to our sin. Other times, our consciences can be so sensitive that we can feel guilty about things that aren't actually sin at all. And for a few minutes, I want to try to understand some of those problems. What are the problems that we have with conscience? Well, one of them I mentioned is that the conscience can become seared. It can become calloused. You know, that's what happens when we make the course of sin normal in our lives. Our consciences become insensitive to it. And it's a lot like when you get a new pair of shoes and the first few days you wear them, I mean, it wears a blister. They can be really uncomfortable. But if you just stick it out, they start to develop a callus. Well, if you persist in sin, your heart loses its sensitivity to it. Your heart becomes callous. Your conscience becomes seared. And so you can probably think of things in your own life that once you thought were despicable, but then you started to dabble with it and then engage with it, and then it became normal and you didn't give it a second thought. And you can become numb to sin. And so I'll often hear unbelievers talk about something they're doing wrong, and they'll say this, my conscience is clear. No, it's not. Your conscience is numb. Your conscience is seared. You've ignored it so long it doesn't work any longer. You know, our world actually says that's a good thing for you to lose that that conscience that sensitivity to conscience so Sigmund Freud father of modern psychoanalysis he said that conscience was just a social construct and the best thing that you could do is to learn to ignore it because it's just trying to conform you to the world around you and you become a slave to the world around you through conscience and so he says the wearing down our conscience Becoming calloused and numb is the only way to become our true, unadulterated selves. 
free from slavery to the world's expectations. But here's what's interesting. That's not what's happening when your conscience becomes seared. What's actually happening is that you're coming under the judgment of God. Look with me at Romans 1. See, being able to sin all you want to and not feel bad about it, is, is, it's not freedom. It's slavery. It's a danger sign of what the future looks like. Romans 1, let's start at verse 24. This is speaking of people that just uh, sin without any sense of guilt, any sense of conscience. It says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. In other words, as their consciences became seared, it was a sign of God turning them over to their own selfish desires. Look at verse 28. Since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So when our world says it is freedom to to wear down your conscience so that you no longer feel bad about sin, it's actually a sign of slavery and coming judgment. That's a warning sign. Here's your check engine light. If that is you, If you are diving headfirst into sin with no sense of guilt and you feel like it is freedom from the living God and you're just getting away with it, you're actually heading in an incredibly dangerous direction towards the judgment of God. So the first problem of conscience is is that they become seared. The second problem of conscience is that they can make us slaves of a life of self-justification. We become slaves of a life of self-justification. There's this interesting line. HBO had a, a series a number of years ago called True Detective, and Matthew McConaughey was in it. And it was two detectives responsible for catching a serial killer. And towards the end of the series, McConaughey's character expresses this philosophy of human nature. He says, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everyone wants confession. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative. And everybody's guilty. That's why you can go to any culture in the history of the world and there is some system of self-justification. There is some religious system to try to fix the inside to clean up the outside, to be good enough so that the inside will be acceptable. And and even an atheist is going to have that acceptable to whom? We don't know. Well, they do know. They suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness, Romans 1 says. But that's natural human religion is to clean up the outside and ignore the inside, to try to look good to the world but not worry about the part that cannot be seen. You know, that, that's what went wrong in the Old Testament. Again, we talked about the fault of the Old Covenant last week. It wasn't that the Old Covenant had problems. It was that people could not, by simply keeping outward laws, justify themselves. 
And what ended up happening was it became purely external. Look with me at Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus is talking to probably some of the most dutiful religious people in the history of the world. Their whole lives were consumed with religious duty. These were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees' main practice was to clean up the outside so that they looked good. In fact, their name means separatists. They believed that if they just separated themselves from, from sinners, then they would be righteous because sin was an outside thing, not an inside thing. Look at Matthew 23. Jesus brings them indictment after indictment. In fact, there's seven of them. I just want to look at a couple. Look at verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. The, the word hypocrite literally meant a stage actor, and it was somebody that wore a mask to be a certain character, and you, you typically had several different masks that you could change to go between characters. In other words, you're, you're pretenders, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You know, just think of, of going to a restaurant and they bring you a bowl, and the outside of it's shiny, but the inside of it's covered in mold. That doesn't look delicious, does it? They've cleaned the wrong part of it. Look at verse 27. He goes again, digs in even harder. Our Lord says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You're always trying to dress up the outside. You're always going through, through ceremonies and rituals, and you're always checking boxes. But you know, you wouldn't know me. You don't know me. They're standing in the presence of God, and they don't realize it. Now, as you're sitting here, you might be thinking, yeah, I can see that some people are really bad like that. Some people have this guilt. But what about good people? What about good people? Are there good people? Some of you have done an evangelism class that gives you the good person test. You think you're a good person? And, and they go on the streets and ask person after person, are you a good person? Almost everybody says, yeah, I think so. And the speaker will say, well, have you ever lied? Yeah? Yeah, who hasn't? Have you ever stolen anything? Yeah? Okay, so what does that make you? You're a thief, you're a liar, okay, but you're a good person. Let's up the ante a little bit. Have you ever committed adultery? They might say, no, I've never done that. Ah, but Jesus said, if you look with a woman, uh, upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Okay, so you're a lying, thieving adulterer, but you're still a good person. Have you ever committed murder? Nope, I have never done that one. Ah, but Jesus says, if you have ever had anger in your heart against a brother, you've committed murder. And so by the end of the questions, you've reached the point where you're a lying, thieving, adulterous murderer but I'm still a really good person. The problem, the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. And with all the, the hand-washing rituals and all the dietary rituals about what you put into your body that the old covenant had, 
It was all symbolic of our greatest need. Not clean hands, but clean hearts. And that's something only the Lord Jesus could provide. That's the third problem with conscience. No matter how hard you try, you can never make it clean. You can never purify your own conscience. Next week, Lord willing, we'll celebrate Reformation Day here at First Scots. That's the 505th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation when an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther rediscovered, and, and there were many uh, others on whose shoulders Luther stood, but Luther was really the figurehead of the Protestant Reformation where the gospel was rediscovered after years of being obscured by empty ritual and man-made traditions. But prior to the Reformation, Luther had been a monk tormented by his own conscience. He has this great line. He said, if ever a monk could get to heaven by monkery, it would have been me. But he never could feel freedom from his sins. He spent all day in acts of religious duty and never found an, felt an ounce of freedom. He had a, a mentor named Johann Staupitz. And he would spend hours every day confessing his sins to Staupitz. But it wasn't until he understood the gospel that Luther got freedom of conscience. For most of us, that's not what a guilty conscience looks like. We're not spending hours in the confessional. But our culture has created a new church, in a sense, where you are the pope. You are the mediator. And the key to dealing with a broken conscience is, what does our culture tell us today? You need to just learn to forgive yourself. You know, as nice as that sounds, it doesn't work because your sins are not against you. Your sins are against a holy, all-seeing God. That's what we read in Psalm 51 earlier. Against you and you only have I sinned. If David's goal had just been to learn to forgive himself, it would have been pointless because he would have lived his life under the shadow of unacknowledged, unremoved guilt no matter what good deeds he did, no matter what psychological babble he might have accepted, no matter what he did, he could not fix the conscience problem. And if he had not understood the gospel, he would have been condemned to a life of trying to cleanse his own conscience and always failing. The law never says enough. It only says more and more and more. And if that is you, if you're just trying to do enough to be a good person and get God off your back, it will never be enough. The hymn writer, Augustus Toplady, has a better solution. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. So we looked at the, the problem of the conscience. And now, let's look at the power of the cross. Look again at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Remember, we're saying here that the earthly tabernacle with its, its, its separate holy places and most holy places, it was a replica 
It was a copy of heavenly realities. And just as the Old Testament high priest would go in and sprinkle blood once a year on the mercy seat, it's saying here Jesus' blood is sprinkled on the heavenly mercy seat to secure an eternal salvation. Verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The cross did what millions of sacrifices through the years in the temple could never do and weren't intended to do. They were intended to cause people to look forward to the the greater sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. They trained people that the cure for dirty consciences couldn't come through dirty hands. It had to come through nail-pierced hands. What Christ came to give was not just outward cleansing, cleansing the outside so people go, oh, he's such a good person, she's wonderful. But a pure heart, a, a pure conscience. And the way he did that is at the cross. On the cross, he took the filth of the consciences of all his people throughout all time, he took it onto himself. And the guilt that my sins deserve was poured out upon him again and again and again upon the cross. Every sin was laid upon him on the cross. You cannot and I cannot imagine the terror of the cross where the wrath of God for all the sins of the people of God were poured out upon the Son of God. Christ took our sins onto himself and he gives us his righteousness. He satisfied the anger of God for our sin upon the cross. We call that propitiation. Well, Pastor, I don't need any of that theological language. Yeah, you do. We're dealing with the single most important problem you face in this life. It's how do we deal with our sin? And the answer is only Jesus can deal with your sin. It's hard to humble ourselves, isn't it? To go before God confess all that we've done wrong, say to God, if you do not forgive me for what I have done, I'll spend eternity in hell. You know, naturally, we like to be like the Pharisee who says, you know, at least I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that tax collector over there. And we're not like the tax collector who said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. Lord, literally, make propitiation for me, the sinner. There is something that looks a lot like Christianity and is often mistaken for Christianity that is not Christianity. And it's based on the idea that to be a Christian, we just go through motions and we just check boxes to look good on the outside. Go to church week after week, tithe, have all the normal Sunday school answers. And if you, if you do that weekly checked list, it'll keep God and your pastor off your back. You've seen that religion. You may have lived that religion. You may be living that today. This, you just do enough to get 
God, your pastor, your parents, your spouse off your back. Flannery O'Connor has this amazing line. She understood life in the Bible Belt, um, spent most, most of her life in Georgia. And she describes one of her characters this way. She says, there was a deep black wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. If I can just stop sinning, then I won't need to humble myself and ask for the grace of Jesus. And so much of what passes for Christianity in America today is just an outward cleansing, going through, through our own version of laws and rituals so that God will, in the end, leave us alone, so that we don't have to stoop to enter the gate of heaven and humble ourselves and confess our sins, acknowledge our own guilty consciences proverbs 14 9 fools mock at the guilt offering but the upright enjoy acceptance if your life is just about outward appearances you're mocking the guilt offering but you will not know acceptance with god going through motions getting dressed up and playing church, trying to be a good person, that's not Christianity. Falling on our faces before God, acknowledging that I am a sinner bound for hell, hopeless if Christ doesn't show me mercy, pleading for his sovereign grace, that's Christianity. That's the gospel. That's what it means to look to Jesus. What Jesus offers is not just partial outward cleansing like the old covenant rituals could do. Jesus offers us full cleansing. Only Christ can do that. Mahatma Gandhi was asked one day by a fellow Hindu, what should I do? I killed a child. And Gandhi said, find a child, a little boy whose father and mother have been killed, and raise him as your own. In other words, that's how you make atonement for yourself. But did it take away the guilt of killing that child? Did it take away the grief that the the parents of that child experienced? Of course not. But consider what God did. He takes those of us with the blood of his son on our hands, forgives our sins, and he makes us his child. Nothing can for sin atone, thou must save and thou alone. So how's your conscience? Before seminary, I was an assistant headmaster of a Christian school. And I found, even though I don't consider myself to be an intimidating person in any way, shape, or form, I found that if I told a student to come by my office, in the next three seconds, that child was going to remember everything he had possibly done wrong in his life to try to figure out what I was about to talk to him about. Do you ever wonder if today's the day that God is going to call you into his office and say, I know what you did? Well, God has known all along. God knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything you've ever thought. And you may successfully hide your secrets from your spouse or from one another 
or from your children or from your pastor or from your boss or from your coworker or from the IRS or from your teacher or from the police, but you cannot hide them from the all-seeing eye of God. He's already seen it. And if you do not trust in the Lord Jesus, there will be a day where he will call you to account for every single sin. Can you imagine that? Giving account for, I can't even imagine giving account for every sin I've committed today. But you'll be called to account for every sin you've committed in your life. All has been discovered. Flee. Flee to the Lord Jesus. If you're trusting in Christ and repentant of your sins, God is not an angry principal calling to talk to you about what you've done. He is a loving Father. Be honest with him. Confess your sins to him. Plead the blood of Christ over them. Ask him for help to turn from them. Use his word so that your conscience will be renewed. Don't double the guilt of your sins by hiding them. Be of sin the double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Acknowledge your sin and turn from it. And as you do, enjoy the gift of a pure conscience because Christ has taken your guilt onto himself if you belong to him. How do we apply this text? First, we need to form the habit of running to the cross, of fleeing to Jesus, especially when our sins have been found out. And and I'm not so much talking about big scandalous sins like you see in the newspaper, but what about when somebody criticizes you or confronts you with your sin? Even if they do it in a spirit of love and charity, don't most of us sort of bristle back? And, and, and we want to defend ourselves? That's, that's, that's our nature. That's our pride. You know, if we're totally honest, we don't need to be defensive when people confront our sin. Because actually it's far worse than they know, isn't it? You know, I mentioned Luther's mentor, Stalpitz. Luther would come to him with hours of confession, and he said to Luther one day, Martin, quit looking at your sin and start looking to Jesus. Beloved, when you are confronted by the realities of your sin, whether it be through providence or through another brother or sister, instead of defending yourself, run to the Lord Jesus and enjoy the grace that's offered to you in the cross. Second, get rid of this idea, please, that you've got to learn to forgive yourself. It's a purely unbiblical concept. I hear people say sometimes, and maybe, maybe you've said this, I know God has forgiven me, I just can't forgive myself. Do you know what you're saying? I have higher standards for God than God does. Jesus may have been adequate to take away my sin in the sight of God, but he's not good enough for me. What you're really saying is, I just haven't really applied the gospel to my life. That's what we're saying when we say, I can't forgive myself. We're saying, I have not brought the cross into this situation. What we need to learn to do is every time that that sin, that past, that guilt comes to mind, we run to the cross. Third, confession and repentance ought to be normal aspects of Christian fellowship. 
if you were to set foot on almost any college campus today, you would find an area called a safe space. You know, safe from things like microaggressions and bigotry and all forms of phobia, or so they say. It's all really foolish. But you and I do need a safe space, a place where it is okay to openly with brothers and sisters, acknowledge our sin and seek help and accountability. Do you know what that place is called? It's called the church. Where you do not have to hide your sin any longer, but you can find brothers and sisters who are mature in Christ, and you can confess your sins to them and and have them help you fix your eyes upon the Lord Jesus. I'm not saying that we become each other's confessors, but oftentimes we are like David. We keep our sin inside and it crushes us. Find a brother, find a sister that you can confess your sins to and ask them for help to turn away from those things and turn to the Lord Jesus. The church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. Finally, you and I need to labor to live with a clear conscience. Cleanse me from its guilt and power, that double cure thing that we're going to sing about in just a moment. If you have your sins forgiven and yet continue to return to the same old, same old pigsties, it will steal the joy of a clean conscience. You know, David in Psalm 51 said, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He didn't lose his salvation, and yet the, the, the guilt of his conscience stole all his joy. If you're a believer, you have been delivered from the dominion of sin, and therefore you are free and motivated to fight against the remnant of sin in your heart because not only are they against the Lord Jesus, but they are against who you are now in Christ. Christ did not cleanse us from sin just so that we could go back out and cover ourselves in the filth of it again. He cleansed us from sin so so that we could go forth in his power and fight sin and put sin to death day after day and live with a clear conscience. Beloved, are you doing that? Are you living with a clear conscience because of what Jesus has done? And are you living with a clear conscience because he's given you the power to fight sin and put it to death in your life? Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we do praise you for your kindness to us in the word that it tells us everything we need for life and godliness. And we pray that you would help us, O oh God, to walk in accord, walk in obedience with it. Father, there are undoubtedly some of us here carrying the weight of a guilty conscience, and perhaps it's because they have never come to Christ. And I pray that you would draw them to yourself this moment by faith, trusting in him. Lord, uh, some undoubtedly have sins from their past, that they just can't let go of. Even though they're trusting in Jesus, they're still holding on to it, holding on to the guilt of it. I pray that you would free them today. And for those of us in here, and this is probably all of us in some way or another, but who are walking in various ways of disobedience, and we have the guilt of that in our conscience, Lord, I pray that you would grant us the grace to repent. Lord,